Welcome to the SCG Church Podcast. We'd love to have you join us for our weekend services in person in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our service live online at scgchurch.org or live on our Facebook and YouTube pages. Thanks for listening. All right, well, today we're starting a new series. It's called Pay Attention to the Tension. And uh, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, there may be some certain things that you're called to do or to be as a Christian that creates some tension within you. And the talk today actually originated because of a complaint that I got recently. I know it's really difficult to imagine that anyone can complain about me or anything at SCG. Um, they must have just been having a bad day. But uh, the complaint that I got was that someone had recently brought a friend to church, which we always encourage to do. And after church, they asked him, hey, what did you think? And the person's response was, we will never come back here again. And I thought, well, Doyle must have been preaching. What, you know, I mean, what are you going to do? No. Um, and they went on to explain that they could never attend a church where that kind of person goes. And I'm not going to tell you the kind of person they had an issue with because it's kind of irrelevant, but there is that kind of person for all of us. Like if we were walking into church today, and yes, I get it, we're holier than thou, and no, 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 I love everybody. All right, well, let's see. Uh, you're walking into church today, and the person in front of you is wearing, pick your least favorite shirt, don't say it out loud, in your mind, all right? So they're wearing this, like the, the type of person that um, represents a worldview that is fundamentally in opposition to your own. Like they live, they think, they vote completely different than you, maybe represented on one of these t-shirts right here. And as you're walking in to church, they are directly in front of you, and then they decide they're going to sit right next to you today. Does that cause just a little bit of tension there? Where you just, oh. Okay, all right. Let's imagine that after church ends, you go to a local restaurant, you're going to sit down for a nice meal with your family, and you see that person there wearing that shirt. And who are they having lunch with? Me. And we're just having a good old time and we're laughing and it's clear that we're friends. In that moment, do you start to kind of wonder about me a little bit? Like, I wonder if Cody agrees with that. I wonder if he's a part of that, that group. I wonder if he would buy into that lifestyle. Does your opinion begin to change a little bit about me. Now, let's, let me give you one more thing to imagine. Oh, by the way, I know how contentious this is because this wasn't my original illustration. Um, I had like a bunch of apparel and gear that represented all these people. And we asked dozens of people to uh, wear these shirts and come out on stage and no one would do it. They said, absolutely not. This is broadcast online. Somebody could see me. Somebody could take a picture. It could misrepresent. They could say, well, maybe they're a part of that. And so nobody would wear these shirts on the stage. That's why I ended up having to just put up here because nobody wanted to be. So that's how, and I get it. That's how divisive things are, is we live in a climate in which we don't even want to be around people whom we may disagree with or be associated with that view or that party. One more, one more question. Go to that same restaurant, you walk in, and at each of these tables, there is a group that is wearing one of these shirts. What table would Jesus sit at? What's the table that he is most likely going to and sit down at? Just by just looking at and knowing kind of the worldview that is represented, which one is he most likely going to go sit with? I think the answer, 
I'm pretty sure the answer would be, he would sit with whoever invited him to the table. Because he did. That's how Jesus lived, is Jesus would go and he would eat with anybody who invited him. They could be anyone from Pharisees to prostitutes, from religious to irreligious. It's as if he didn't care about his reputation. In fact, people accused him of being with these sinners and ruining his reputation because he was okay with being seen as one of them, even though he clearly wasn't. Because he was way more concerned about people than he was about perception. And I'm not saying it's not important. I'm not saying I don't get it. But here's what I want to actually look into, is how, how is Jesus so comfortable living in that kind of tension? Because I'm not that comfortable and you're not that comfortable. And yet he lived in this messy middle where he didn't feel like he came to take sides, but he came to take over. How was he able to do that? So I want to jump in today to John 1, uh, starting at verse 14. If you have your Bibles or Bible app, you can uh, jump in there with me and read along. And I'm going to ask them to take those shirts away because you will be distracted the entire service. And you'll be like, some of you guys will be like, I want to buy one of those. Some of you guys are like, I want to burn one. It's like, all right. Here's what it says. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So John is making this really big claim, and if you know what precedes this in this verse, he's talking about how Jesus is the Word, that he is like the revelation of God, that he is the creator stepped into creation to reveal himself to humanity. And then he says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And there's the key right there. The reason why Jesus is able to live in that kind of tension, that messy middle, is that he was full of grace and and truth. I don't know if you've ever experienced grace and truth simultaneously. Now, oftentimes it's one or the other, and we'll talk about that. But I do remember one of the earliest times I experienced both. I was in fifth grade, and uh, there was a kid in my class that I just didn't get along with. He didn't like me. I didn't like him. We didn't see eye to eye. And in my teacher's infinite wisdom, she thought, you know what? I'm going to put these two next to each other. And see how that goes. Well, it didn't go very well. And I don't remember what the issue was that day. We were always in some sort of conflict. Um, I don't remember what the issue was that day. But I do remember saying something that clearly angered him. And the next thing that I knew is there was a right hook to my eye in the middle of class. And I should have known better. This kid was twice my size. In fifth grade, he had a mustache that most grown men would be uh, impressed with. I should have kept my mouth shut, admittedly so. And I don't know where this came from. But my reaction as he hit me was I had a pencil in my hand and I just went and just, just drove it right into the top of his hand. I don't know if this is where I began liking prison documentaries or not. Uh, it kicked off, okay? Things went pretty wild and the dust eventually settled and the teacher got to the bottom of what had happened and sent us off to first the nurse's office to get fixed up and then to the principal's office. And as I go to the principal's office and I'm sitting there in front of his desk, there's a giant window behind, yeah, behind him, and then there's an elevated walkway. And as I look out that window, I see my mother standing there. How, apparently she was there to pick up my sister from school early, and she was standing out there, and I thought, no matter what this kid is going to do to me, she's going to do something far worse right now. And so they go and they get my mom and they bring her in and they tell her everything that had happened. And 
started telling her the consequences of me being suspended, and it was the end of the year, so I might not be able to go to graduation and the parties and all this stuff, and eh, the consequences are mounting. And by, uh, by the end of all of it, once her and I were alone, I remember what, uh, I don't remember the exact words, but it, it was something like this. Cody, you messed up. You messed up pretty big this time. This is a real big problem. She spoke truth. It, it was true. I messed up. But then she turned around and said, but just know that I will always love you. That I will always forgive you. What she did in that moment was she gave me this, this truth and this grace. And then she said, now and go, go and stab no more. <laughs> and, I, and I haven't. I made her proud. I didn't stab another person um, ever since then. But it was this weird experience of, because usually we experience one or we experience the other, but together it's different. And so when it says here that Jesus is full of truth, what exactly is it talking about? When Jesus was on trial and he comes before Pilate and Pilate starts questioning him who he is, here's how he responds. He says, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Right before this, when he was talking to his disciples, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. So what he's saying here is he's saying that there isn't just a truth or I don't just speak the truth, but I am the truth. If you know anything about philosophy, you remember philosophy 101, there's these different branches of philosophy. One's called ontology. And ontology is simply the study of what is real, what exists. And then there's epistemology, and that's the study of, well, how do we know certain things? Jesus is answering those fundamental questions with this very statement. He is saying that there is this real objective truth, spiritually and, and morally and physically. That truth isn't subjective or relative. You don't get to decide what is true. There is a truth that exists outside of you and me and anything within our culture. It is true whether you believe it or not. Huge claim. And then he also says, if you want to know what is true, you just have to look at me. Don't look within yourself. Don't ask, well, what do I think is true? What is true for me? Or, or what is true within this cultural context? No, he says, if you want to know what is true spiritually and relationally and physically and morally, simply look at me. Pilate's response is, what is truth? He just dismisses it. There is a man that is standing in front of him that claims to be God incarnate, that he is the embodiment of truth. And his response is, eh, who cares about truth? You know why? He doesn't care about truth because it's not going to get him what he wants. And, and this is most of our response when it comes to being confronted with truth, is we would much rather have our truth, my truth, than the truth. Because when we have our own truth, it allows us to pursue what we really want and what we really desire. But when we have a truth that is beyond us, one that we have to bow down and be subjected to, yeah, we don't really like that idea. Because the human heart wants to be in control. It wants to be its own authority. But here's the weird thing about truth in an, ob an objective sense. You can avoid it for a little while and you can live your truth. But if it doesn't align with the truth, those two will come into conflict. And the truth will always win because it represents reality. I was listening to a conversation, it was like a roundtable conversation with people from all different walks of life and views, and they were talking about relationships, and one of the women spoke up and she says, well, 
the truth for me when it comes to relationships is, is I'm polyamorous. I'm in multiple relationships at a time. And that's just my truth, and that's just what I'm most comfortable with, and that's what makes me happy. And there was a Christian at the table, and, and she, was, she was so smart. She said, you know, I understand that you believe that this is your truth, and it may be fun for a while, but if there is a truth about how you were made, how are you made relationally and sexually, and that truth is that it is one man, one woman together for a lifetime, eventually that truth is going to come into conflict with your truth, and it's not going to be pretty. You're not going to be happy because you were made one way and you're living a different way, and when those come into conflict, you're always going to lose. And this is what Jesus is claiming. He's saying, I am the truth. And so if you want to know what is true about marriage, sex, your talents, your resources, your money, your time, your bodies, all the things in your life, if you want to know how to view and use those things, don't look at yourself. Don't look to the people around you. Look at me because I'm the one who has the answers. Then this thing of grace, what does it mean to be full of grace? It continues on in verse 16. He says, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. I met with the pastors this week talking about this message and, okay, what does it mean to be full of grace and what exactly is grace? And we ended up having a two-hour discussion about what grace is. And I'm like, it's in the name of our church. We should have a pretty clear understanding. It's a pretty big part of our faith. What is grace? And we had two hours worth of answers. And so I just walked away going, grace is complicated. It's complicated. There's, it's multifaceted, it's deep, there's a lot to understand, and so I just came back to where I started, which is the very simple definition of grace. Grace is that God blesses you even when you don't deserve it. God blesses you even though you don't deserve it. And so within Jesus is this desire to give us these good gifts that we don't deserve. Acceptance, forgiveness, compassion, kindness, love. We don't deserve any of those things from him. And yet there is this desire within him, this overflow, where he just wants to continue to give us these good gifts. And we can see it in how he interacts with different people. And so I want to give you two different uh, people, uh, interactions that Jesus has. And they're kind of on the opposite ends of the spectrum. So the first one's in John 3. And it says this, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And so Jesus is talking to this religious leader. And so he knows every part of the scriptures. He knows all the rules and he tries to follow them to a T. This is a morally and religiously upstanding citizen. And yet Jesus begins to speak some really hard truths to him. He says, you know, no matter how good you are and how closely you may follow these rules, you're never going to be good enough for God. You're still broken. You're still a mess. Just think about if you were having coffee with a friend and they started speaking this truth to you. (laughs) So um, this is going to be uncomfortable, but I just got to tell you, you're like rotten to your core. Like, you are such a disaster, there's no fixing you. I don't care what self-help you have. I don't care what counseling or therapy you go to. At the end of the day, you're too broken to be fixed. Ugh, (laughs) that's uncomfortable. But that's what Jesus is saying to this man who takes so much pride in, in uh, in his morality. And so the truth is you're broken. So broken you have to be born again. 
But then he turns around and he says this. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. And so he speaks truth and then he turns around and he shows grace. And he says, yeah, you're right, you can't fix yourself, but that's what I've come to do. Not because you deserve it, not because there's something within you that makes you, no, 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 it's because of me. I have come in order to reconcile you to your heavenly father. You've been in rebellion and I have come to save you. We skip just a couple, or to the next chapter and we see somebody on the other side of the moral and spiritual spectrum. And you may be familiar with this story. It's the woman of the well. If you're not, let me give you the cliff notes really quick. Is Jesus is with his disciples and they're walking through Samaria, which is a land where the people are the enemies of the Jews. And as he's going, he comes to a well and they stop to get a drink of water and the disciples go off to get some food. And this woman in the middle of the day comes and starts getting water. And you got to know a little bit about the culture is she's coming in the middle of the day because she's an outcast. Clearly, her community wants nothing to do with her, so that's why she's by herself. And she's also Sumerian, which means she's an enemy, and she's a woman, which no man should be talking to. But yet, Jesus starts breaking all these barriers and starts to dialogue with her and says, hey, can you get me some water? She's like, well, I mean, I guess. Do you have a bucket? Like, what do you want me to do? Why are you even talking to me? And he says, you know, if I were you, I would actually be asking me for a living water. She goes, what's a living water? It's, like a, it's, a, it's a water that never runs dry. It's like, well, that sounds like an everlasting gobstopper, and I would like one of those, so may I have one, please? And here's what he says. He says, well, okay, go and call your husband and come back. What's my, call my husband? What does that have to do? You just offered me some living water. I said that I want it, and now you say, go call your husband. And here's her response. But I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. You know the classic question people ask, like, if you could sit down with anyone in human history, eh, who would you sit down with and have a conversation? And Jesus is always one of the top answers, which I think is, is correct. But I'm not sure you would like the conversation. Because for her... The thing that he says is, he says, okay, let's talk. And I want to talk about that issue, the issue, the one that has brought so much shame and pain into your life. Uh, we'll start talking about the truth of who you really are and what you've really done. And so she says, okay, um, I can see that you're a prophet. Uh, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship. And so she changes the subject, and she's like, I don't want to talk about that. Uh, let's talk about religion instead. And so she starts again, and Jesus says, yeah, yeah, things are about to fundamentally change. The way that we have done things, worshiping in, in temples and sacrifices, all that is about to change. And the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Now listen to this. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. You see what he did there? He does these two things. He speaks truth. And he goes, here's what you've done. Let's not deny it. I know who you are. Here's the life that you've lived. You know the law. The law is one man, one woman for a lifetime. And you've had five husbands. And now you're sleeping with somebody whom you're not married to. You know you're broken. And you're looking for something. 
You think right now you're looking for water, but you're looking for a deeper satisfaction. What you're looking for is something that will satisfy your soul. And you've been looking to men, but it hasn't satisfied. What you're really looking for is something that can only be satisfied by your creator. And then he shows her grace. This is actually the first time that Jesus reveals who he is to somebody. Up until this point, people suspected it, but it's a bit of a, a shocker. And she's the first person whom he tells. I, I don't know if you've uh, had children or not, or, um, but when we had our first, uh, Sienna, I remember just the first couple months when Amy was pregnant, we told, the first people we told were her parents and my parents. And we brought my parents, because it's their first grandchild, you know, these little baby shoes, they open it like, oh my goodness, you know, it's so great. And then, and then for a couple months, we didn't tell anybody. It's just, it's a big surprise. And we're all holding this incredible secret that we can't wait to share with people, but it's just ours for a little bit. How much more is this surprise? How, how much more important is this? That God has stepped into creation, and she now is on the inside of this incredible surprise. You told me, of all people in the world, why would you tell me? Uh, there's nothing in you that deserves it. You're right. It's my grace. It's all grace. I, I want to give you this gift that you don't deserve. And then he offers an even bigger gift, a relationship with himself. He says, you need a living water. You need a relationship with me. And so he extends forgiveness and acceptance and love to her. We see this over and over again in Jesus' interactions. He speaks truth and he shows grace. And as followers, um, that's our job as well. It's people who follow Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. And so we want to be those kinds of people that are full of truth and grace as well. And so the question is, okay, well, how do we do that? How, how do we become people who are full of truth and grace? And, you know, I don't think this is all the answer, but this is the first thing that came out. Is, well, we got to know truth and we have to experience his grace. We got to know truth and experience his grace. And so we have to know what is true. We have to know what is true about God and who he is and his character and his attributes, who he has revealed himself to be in, in, in through nature and through scriptures. And we also need to know the truth about ourselves. I think Tim Keller summarizes the truth about humanity in this little succinct um, quote. He says, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hoped. He goes, here's who you are. You're broken. You got to admit it. You are just, um, you're a disaster. <laughs> From the inside out, you're a mess. And yet you're loved. The truth is, you're a mess. The grace is, you're loved anyway. And then what does he want from us? How does he want us to live? What, it, what does it mean to be a follower of him? And then we need to experience his grace. We need to be constantly reflecting on the incredible gifts that God has given us that we don't deserve. So think about this. Um, what did you do to deserve to be created? Nothing. Not just you personally, but like humanity, the universe. What benefit is it of God's uh, benefit for God to create humanity? Nothing. And in fact, it's very costly for him. He only did that out of his grace. Or think about your life. Think about the good gifts that he has given you, the resources, the opportunities, the relationships, all of the things that you have in your life. How much of that is because of you? Very little. It's grace. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it tells us that we are dead in our sins. Spiritually, we're dead. We cannot even reach out to God. For us to even be interested in a relationship with God is because he's initiated it. And not only does he do that, but then he dies for us so that it may be completed. 
It's all grace. Everything we have is grace. The problem is that we have this natural tendency to go to one side or the other. So there's like truth people and there's grace people. And you know who you are. You know who you are. You, you lean a little bit more one direction than you do the other direction. And there's strengths in those. Like for me, you know, this is going to be a shocker, but I'm kind of a truth person. I like truth. And if you're a truth person, you probably have some strong convictions about what is right and wrong. And if you see something that is evil and injustice, oppression, you, you may speak up. You're going to ruffle some feathers. You're okay with not getting along with everybody. You set standards, and you want to excel and meet those standards, and you push other people to meet those standards as well. So at the end of the day, you're not primarily concerned with being liked. You're concerned with being right. <laughs> but then you have grace people. And, and grace people... They're just great to be around, aren't they? You know, they just walk in like, you. <laughs> no, you. You. Oh, I just love the way that you came into the room. You're just amazing the way that you are. You're perfect. Okay, you're perfect. Give me a hug. And they're not really concerned with what is right and wrong. Maybe just what works. What helps people get by? These people don't want to ruffle any feathers. They're going to cut you a lot of slack. They're going to be welcoming and accepting. And they're really more concerned with being liked than they are with being right. And see, all of us, we, we fall to one side or the other. But here's the dangers. Is uh, when we're confronted with attention. So remember, go back to, you know, whoever, whatever the t-shirt is. You're confronted with that person. Our natural tendency is to fall towards one side or the other, whichever one we're more comfortable, and then we just come, become all of that, all truth or all grace. The way that we're going to resolve that tension is we're just going to fall to one side or the other. But what happens is when you become all grace or you become all truth, you actually lose something. You get neither. So if you become somebody who is all truth without grace, it turns into legalism. You have to prove, you have to earn your salvation, you have to impress God, you have to be better. And it produces people who are pretty judgmental, critical, mean, and sometimes pretty nasty. And you might have grown up in a church like that, where every single weekend it was, you're going to go to hell and you deserve it. Truth, truth, truth. So I have a question for people who may lean towards that truth side. Do people who are not like you, like you? Do people who are not like you, like you? So think about that t-shirt. Does that kind of person like you? I didn't say agree with you, I said like you. If they don't, it might be because you're all truth and no grace. All right, the other side, all grace, no truth. That becomes a license to sin. When we think, oh, you know what, God is love and God forgives or, you know, this whole concept of sin is kind of silly anyway. What ends up happening is we don't see our need for a savior. Why would we need saving if there's nothing wrong with us? And so we're just fine the way that we are. We don't need to change. We don't need to become better unless we want to. We're just, we're good. Those of us who are parents and we try this grace-only parenting it leads to spiritual rebellion, which, by the way, both do. Either sides of the spectrum, when you're a parent, you will create children who rebel, but for different reasons. 
If, you have, if you're a legalistic parent, those kids are never going to be able to live under the weight of all of those expectations and all of those rules, and so they will eventually rebel and go, I want nothing to do with this. But if you're on the other side, they're going to rebel as well because they don't see any need for that structure. They don't think that there's anything wrong. And so if you're all the way on the grace side, you don't do it out of love. We think it's more loving. Oh, I'm just going to accept them the way that they are. No, no, no. You do it out of fear. It's not for their benefit, it's for yours. Because if I had to then speak truth to them, it would become uncomfortable and awkward, and I don't really want to have to deal with that. And so I'm just not going to tell them the truth, not because it's not, they don't need to hear it, it's because I don't want to say it. Can you imagine if you had a doctor like that? Like you had a doctor that's all grace and no truth, what kind of appointment that would be? You'd walk in and they'd be like, charts? Who needs charts? Who cares? How are you? You are awesome. I love what you're wearing today. The way that you came in here, wow. <laughs> you must be popular. You are, uh, yeah, but like how's my blood work? And I, I kind of have this pain. Have you figured out what that is? Don't worry about that. Just feel good about yourself. You do you, boo. <laughs> no, you, you would say, that's a horrible doctor. <laughs> it's because when you're all grace and no truth, it's not that you've avoided what is coming. It's just that you're unaware. There's this tension of truth and grace, and it can be really messy and confusing at times. I was thinking back to when I was a young adults pastor. For many years, I ran a young adults group, and we had hundreds of young adults that would come in from all different walks of life. And oftentimes, people would come in, and they've never been to church before. They got invited by a friend, and they're trying to explore faith and figure out what this is all about. And because they're not Christians, they're living kind of the way that they want. And so we'd have people who were coming in, and they're living together, and you know they don't know anything about the faith. And and so we try to navigate, okay, what does this look like? As we're investing in them and they're investing in us and we know that they're not living the way that God wants them to, how are we supposed to address that? And I would tell our leadership, well, if they're just checking out faith, they haven't signed up for this, your job is just to paint a picture, speak truth of what God's best is and, and why it's better, and then just continue to show them love, continue to show them grace. You, you can't expect anything from them. But then we had this other weird thing that would happen, which is we'd have people who are really integral part of the group, and they were committed Christians, and they were volunteering, and they were in small groups, and then we would hear that they're dating someone and that they moved in with their boyfriend or girlfriend. And the small group would get together, and they would address it with the person, and they would say, hey, you know what God's best is, and you know that this isn't it, and so you're going to have to stop what you're doing, repent, and, and come back. And we did have some people who said, no, I'm not going to. This is what I want to do. I want to love Jesus, but I also want to live in my sin. And so they came to me and they said, hey, we've addressed it. We've talked to them. We've spoken truth. And so we're just going to continue to show them grace. Just continue to love on them at small group. Continue to affirm them. Continue to encourage them. Continue to, and I said, actually, that's not what it looks like to be full of truth and grace. They said, well, I thought that's what we were supposed to do. We did. I said, no, 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 it's different. And then I would read them this verse. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Oh, that's messy. Really messy. So what you're saying is that 
truth and grace for this person who's exploring faith and living this lifestyle, it's simply to continue to paint a better picture for what God wants for them and to love on them, to bring compassion. But then this other person who is a believer and professes faith in Christ, truth and grace for them is to pull back our relationship so that they may feel the weight of their sin and then come back into a right relationship with God? That's messy. That's confusing. There's this underlying assumption in our culture that says, if you love me, you will accept and affirm everything I do, which is the dumbest thing that we've come up with. What? You don't believe that. It's why we have this thing called an intervention. An intervention is saying, um, because we love you and we see that you're destroying your life, we're either telling you you need to stop or we're going to stop the relationship. Not because we don't love you, but because we do love you, that we are going to pull back so that you feel the weight of what you're doing in hopes that you'll turn it around. See, truth and grace, it's messy. Oh, it's confusing. It's something we well, got to wrestle with. There's no like, okay, it, it, it's, it's why there's a tension because there's no easy answers in this deal. As we were discussing it, Doyle said this. He said, if you're ever confused when it comes to truth and grace, always aim towards what is most redemptive. Always aim for trying to point somebody to Jesus and to be in a right relationship with him. We have to be full of truth and grace, and we're always pointing people towards redemption. And so when we face these difficult decisions and discussions, it feels like we may on a regular basis these days. I want you to pay attention to the tension between truth and grace, because the natural tendency is for us to try to relieve that tension by going to one or towards the other, but if we're going to be anything like Jesus, he says that we got to be people who are living in the messy, in the messy middle. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your truth and grace in our own lives. Uh, you have given us um, gifts so much greater than anything that we deserve. And so, Lord, we stand firm on the fact that you love us even though we're broken. And, that, and it produces in us this confidence and this humility. Another thing that seems to be intention. And so, Lord, we just want to be people who are just so full of truth and grace that as we go through life and maybe bump into people, they just experience this overflow of truth and grace, and they want something that, that they haven't seen before. It, it's something that they're attracted to because it's something that's not offered in the world. And so, Lord, we just thank you. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen. All right, will you guys stand with me? Thank you guys so much for being here on this holiday weekend. Please get signed up and help out at VBS. The more volunteers, the more kids we get to have. Other than that, we will see you next weekend. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we have live services on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings in our West Auditorium. Or you can watch live online at scgchurch.org or on our YouTube and Facebook.